0: Hello everyone, it's November thirteenth, twenty eighteen. So Elon tweeted about a mini BFS for Falcon 9 and Lucy is one step closer to flying. And we have a data relay all about Mars Insight. It'll be landing in just a few weeks on the red planet. So let's get to know it and lift off. And we have Clear the Tower. Welcome to episode one eighty four of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So Ben, I'm glad you can make it. Right now, you're you're not home, are you? No, I'm at I'm at my
1: folks home in uh, in Lancaster California so I gotta apologize um I'm very snotty and sneezy and coffee uh, I'm gonna be snuffling a lot and it's um just from the smoke inhalation uh- <laughs> If anybody's not familiar, um, the campfire, camp is the name of the road that it started near. Just, just like the car fire this summer was not a car fire. Yeah,
0: these names are confusing.
1: Anyway, so the campfire uh, is now the largest uh, wildfire in California history. Uh, I think actually probably American history or uh, you know U.S. history. But it started um, just north of a town called Paradise, which is 20 minutes kind of northeast of Chico, where I live, and it swept through paradise. It destroyed uh, thousands and thousands of structures. Uh, right now, the um, the body count is, I think, 26 is the most recent. So it swept through paradise, um, and then it started heading towards Chico. I live on the east side of Chico, so I was actually uh, issued an evacuation warning. So I, m- me and my wife grabbed the the animals and our important documents and headed out. We spent the night in Reading. And then the next morning they lifted the uh, evacuation order. So we were able to go back. But yeah, when we left our, I don't want to be dramatic here, but like when we left our apartment, we could see flames from our bedroom window
2: oh jeez. yeah
1: um and so uh we were we were literally one of the first stops that this fire would have hit was our apartment and so uh, we went up to redding and i was watching Modis data um Modus and veers data coming in on firms the fire something informatics something or other r- reporting system <laughs> <laughs> um and uh so Modis is uh experiments on two different t- uh Uh, satellites. Uh, One is called Aqua, one is called Terra. And it's, it's got a high temporal resolution, but a low spatial resolution. One of the bands that it does is it specifically looks for fire. And it told us that there was fire literally in our neighborhood. Um, It turns out that the spatial resolution was fuzzy enough that it was actually uh, the fire that we saw about a mile away, half a mile away, but it, it planted, you know, it lapped over into the grid that we lived in And really, uh, really was a a a little bit of a a tense night uh, until the next morning. We you know got confirmations that it hadn't actually entered the the city of Chico. It it got pretty close, I think. If we're being really strict about where the city limits are, it did enter the city. But yeah, so uh, Chico is fine, but it's covered by the densest smoke layer I've ever seen. Midday, it was you know as if the sun had gone down, and so uh, we decided to leave for the week weekend and so we yeah. we drove south which is the direction that all the wind is going so it's like running directly away from a falling tree instead of running to the side so we we drove all day and we were under heavy smoke cover the entire day um, until the sunset and we finally arrived in the annalette valley and now i see blue skies and it's really nice
0: so are you able to go back if you wanted to has yes. it been lifted yeah yeah yeah.
1: It, it was lifted the next morning the evacuation order so Um, We went home. We did a little bit of laundry. We actually spent a night. We were going to just tough it out, but we both um, had really bad smoke inhalation symptoms. And if, you know, we're big, our animals are both small. So, you know, we're like, if we're having issues, these two are going to have issues. Yeah. Uh, So we... Hopped in
0: the car. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that things are still standing because uh, I got worried yeah. there. I, I'm sure yeah. you were, yeah, freaking out too.
2: Yeah, I was seeing Chico on the news, and I was I recognized that from you know. Yeah, the, I
0: saw it too. So yeah. really glad everything. Yeah. Went.
1: Well, I mean, par- Paradise is gone. Uh, Megalia is spotty. Megalia's the next town north, and then now it's headed down towards uh, Oroville, and Oroville is being threatened. Um, but I mean, it's the the fire. Last I checked, was over. A uh, hundred thousand acres burned. So just enormous. I mean, and, and at such speed. I mean, it just it tore through. Um, so we had really high winds last night. We're gonna have high winds tonight or tomorrow. So we'll we'll see what happens.
0: Okay. Well, we will carry on then, uh, so that you can uh, uh, get back to attending your. Smoke inhalation symptoms. I don't know how you're going to do that, but uh, I guess just drink lots of water.
1: I'm blowing my nose constantly. I mean, it's pretty gross. <laughs>
0: yeah. So this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have some winners, and uh, and I'm kind of happy that we have some winners. And we had uh, well, we had one incorrect guess, but he got it right later on.
1: So, uh, Berkland on Discord guessed correctly. Burke sounds like a familiar name, but I don't know who you are. Um, then on Twitter, we had Chubby, Gabriel, or Gabriel Norris, uh, law loving Patrick McGuire, and then Valentin Frank also guessed correctly. Valentin guessed the the right event, but the, <laughs> but for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so so his guess was uh, the birth of Fred Hayes. Uh, and then he said, who would have loved some cranberry juice to give to his sick friend, Jim Lovell, which sure. I think is the purest <laughs> thing I have read in months. Um, but no, I, we'll, we'll get to it. So this week in space Flight history is November 14th, 1933 it was the birth of Fred Wallace Hayes Jr. And Wikipedia says his first name was Fred, not Frederick, which is interesting. So uh, Fred Hayes was born in Biloxi. Mississippi is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, mm-hmm. you guys think? Biloxi. Biloxi. And uh, his it's it's so funny because you know today when you're an astronaut you have a doctorate and you know you're you've been at the top of your field for you know years and uh, Fred Hayes had an associate's degree in arts and uh, mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. So the the reason that he was highly qualified to be an astronaut is because he joined NAVCAT or the Naval Aviation Cadet. Training program something like that and um, so he ended up uh, becoming a pilot and uh, a highly prolific pilot then he went on famously to fly an Apollo 13 Uh, he would have been the sixth person to step out onto the moon uh, if, you know, it wasn't for Apollo 13. And during Apollo 13, he had a UTI, which later became a kidney infection. Uh, But that's where the clue comes from. Uh, The clue was, um, what, 100,000 miles and no cranberry juice or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... (laughs) you know obviously cranberry juice is a very mild way to treat <laughs> a UTI not not super effective but you know statistically uh noticeable and then uh he was planned or he he actually uh was the Apollo 16 backup commander um so he successfully completed that backup mission um and then he was uh you know theoretically slated to be the commander on Apollo 19 uh no you know no commands were issued or no orders were issued but um that was kind of what the lineup was was looking like. So then he he went on to fly the Shuttle Alt missions with uh Fullerton and um what's really interesting is he was actually supposed to fly the second Shuttle mission, but you know, then Shuttle got delayed. So the the second Shuttle mission was planned to be actually a delivery mission to SkyLab to deliver a booster uh to reboost SkyLab to keep it flying, but Shuttle got delayed. And Skylab, uh, you know, ended up falling out of the sky. So uh, by the time uh, the second shuttle mission flew, Skylab was no longer a thing. But how cool would that have been to to see, uh, you know, Fred Hayes go and save... Uh, Skylab. I think that would be really cool. That would. All right. The clue for 1960 is 10 centimeters and still no cranberry juice.
0: So if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag SF and good luck. I
2: got to tell you, David, I have no idea what the answer to this one is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally clueless.
0: That's, that's how I feel most weeks, actually. So... <laughs> Lucy passes key decision point C. So who is Lucy? Uh, I assume she will be in the sky.
2: Right? Actually, that yeah. Lucy does have a fun little lineage.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so do you guys know? Yeah. This name, it's it's three references away from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Mm-hmm. So Lucy is named after Lucy, the Australopithecus skeleton, which is named after the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds.
0: Oh, yeah. neat. That's uh, awesome.
1: So how, yeah, how cool is it that Lucy eventually gets back up into space? Yeah, so um, Lucy is Discovery 13, so the Discovery spacecraft program. Uh, Psyche is Discovery 14. Psyche is also really cool. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the reason I mention this is because later on in the show, we'll talk about InSight, and InSight is also a Discovery uh, spacecraft. So uh, decision point C. It's really important. I wanted to talk about the project lifecycle real quick because we haven't done it in a while. There are a number of stages that define the way that NASA runs through the life of a spacecraft. It begins with pre-A, which is you know concept studies, which is basically uh, you're in a bar, you come up with a good idea, you write it down on a napkin. Uh, <laughs> the next day when you sober up, you uh, turn it into uh, an actual proposal. Then... A is concept and tech development. B is preliminary design and tech completion. C is final design and fabrication. That's what Lucy just hit. So now that Lucy is past key decision point C, it can go from being uh, a paper lion to an actual spacecraft. Then there are a couple more steps. Uh, D is systems assembly, test, and launch. E is ops and sustainment. And then F is closeout. So that's kind of where we are this is such a, a a big step for lucy and uh, i'm i'm very very excited so what the who who the heck is lucy what's lucy going to do so lucy is going to go study the trojan and greek asteroids they hang out in the l4 and l5 lagrange points of jupiter um so jupiter has these groups of asteroids that it has shepherded into a one-to-one resonance with itself. Um, There's also a group of asteroids that's in a three-to-one resonance with itself, but we're not going to talk about that right now. So what Lucy is going to do, oh my gosh, this is is so cool.
2: This is sci-fi.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. So it's going to launch in 2021. It's going to stay in the... Uh, the inner solar system for a little bit. It'll get a gravity assist off of Earth. I, I'm pretty sure it's off of Earth. And that's going to help kick it up into a high orbit where it can get up to Jupiter's up to Jupiter's orbit. So on the way out in 2025, it's going to stop by 52246 Donald Johansson. And uh, Donald Johansson is a C-type asteroid in the inner belt. It's part of the uh, Aragon family of asteroids which are roughly 130 million years old and so the reason that this is so cool is because donald johansson is the guy who discovered lucy the australopithecus um so it, the the asteroid <laughs> really?
0: got named after him i see how it's all coming together
2: that is terrific. so good. Wow.
1: <laughs> um, then in 2027, it will arrive at Jupiter's L4 Lagrange point. While it's there, it'll stop by four different, uh, almost called them satellites, four different asteroids. <laughs> 3548 Euribates, I think it's Euribatis, uh 15094 Polymeal, 11351 Leticus, and 21900 Oris. Um, These are C, D, and P-type asteroids. The one that I think is really cool is polymeal is likely to be a collisional fragment uh, from a previous collision. So as if that's not cool enough, uh, that's five asteroid flybys under Lucy's belt. Then what does she do? She flies back back to the inner solar system, gets a boost off of Earth, and flies out to L5, to Jupiter's L5 point. Uh, It'll reach uh, L5 in 2033. And while it's there, it has a number of targets that it's going to hit, but we don't know exactly what they're going to be because it's Out in, you know, 2033, Uh it's so far out in the future, but we know, uh, we have one, uh, one priority and that 617 Petrolicus, uh, which is really cool because it's got a moon named Menoetus. Um, And so it's this binary system that that orbit. And then if that's not cool enough, every six years, it will flip flop back and forth between L4 and L5. It'll put itself, I believe, into a resonance with Jupiter. Um, So even though its argument of periapsis relative to the sun isn't going to change that much, it'll be in this orbit where it'll loop through. Uh, back and forth between uh, the Greeks and the Trojans uh, on a six year cycle so every six years we'll start getting new data from Lucy this makes me so happy um, it's such a cool orbital dynamic uh, but it's also such a cool like science uh, target um, i I'm very very excited um,
2: yeah I mean just in terms of like optimizing your pay like the number of targets that it's hitting is just—it's unprecedented.
0: It kind of reminds me of Dawn because we were just talking about how you know prolific that spacecraft was with all the you know its various visitations and mm-hmm. this yeah. one's up there too.
1: And that was two, yeah. <laughs> I'm very very excited about Lucy, um, and it's mm-hmm. it's really cool to see it hit key decision point C. You know, like now we can, mm-hmm. it, now it's getting into the point where this show can start talking about it, right? Because we're so hardware based. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, that that now we're actually going to start building some hardware. So look forward to new more news about that in the future.
0: Cool. Next up, we're going to talk about SpaceX. I feel like we haven't done that in, well, I guess a couple of weeks. <laughs> and we only have a tweet to go on here, but a very interesting one uh, yeah. by Elon Musk about what SpaceX might be doing with their Falcon 9 second stage. So apparently, I guess in order to prepare or to get some data on the BFR, They're going to be turning the second stage into a kind of BFR ship. But to what degree and what all that entails, I mean, we have no idea. We just have this tweet so far, Um, but it's very interesting. So um, the exact tweet was uh, mod to SpaceX tech tree built Falcon 9 second stage will be upgraded to be like a mini BFR ship. Okay, so mod to SpaceX tech tree build. Um, I wonder if anyone can unpack that a little bit. What is uh, a tech tree build? Yeah. A, a, oh, do,
1: do we have a yes, yes, no here? A yes, yes, uh, no what? David, do you understand what a tech tree build is?
0: No, I, I mean, I have a pretty good idea, but I would like to get a better definition. Like, I, Well,
1: just play along with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Dennis, okay, do you no? know what a tech tree build is? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Now you guys ask me. <laughs>
0: Okay, what is a tech tree build, Ben?
1: So, uh, one of my favorite favorite podcasts is Reply All, and every once in a while they do a segment called Yes, Yes, No, where they grab a tweet that at least one of them doesn't understand. And so they start with a poll saying, you know, Yes, Yes, No, do you understand? And then by the end they get to Yes, Yes, Yes. So this is a this is a gaming reference. I'm sure you actually know what this is, uh, but it's it's a reference to how games will have tech trees. Um, where you have to research steps along the way in order to get up to the higher technologies. So he's just saying, hey, um, we're playing a game here, which, I mean, it's an interesting way to to view this kind of development. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a game reference.
2: I guess I got the sense of that, but I figured there must have been something more like, you know, yeah, I know tech trees from video games, but I feared he was referencing, right. you know, something yeah. a little more.
0: <laughs> it is a Elon Musk tweet. So I guess, yeah, expect anything. That's true. So I mean, what this will look like, I guess we don't know. But um I think that it's generally agreed that the big systems that you have to test are the thermal protection systems and thin stabilization, since that's something that's kind of like a new alteration that they made like now that you have these three big fins but only two of which will be actually stabilizing the thing on re-entry so i guess that's what they'll be focusing on but there's no word on if they're gonna have like like an integrated payload fairing which is more like a payload door or for that matter if they're going to have the raptor engine on that second stage and i don't i doubt it yeah it, it's all this is weird to me because like because we kept hearing how you know Block Five is the final design in that set. And I guess that that's still true. And this is just mm-hmm. some kind of like a side experiment that they're trying out. But I just did not expect them to be doing anything with the second stage. But then again, mm-hmm. uh we knew from past things that have been said over the past couple of years that SpaceX does want to try and recover that second stage. And in order to do that, they're going to have to add some things or, you know, change some stuff. So I'm wondering how this impacts that. So I guess maybe the last statement that uh, Musk had said about bringing the second stage back, which was to use a giant party balloon, is that like off the table now? And they're just going to be focusing that, on this? That,
1: wasn't that for for deorbiting, pretty much? I mean, not like for actually doing the deorbiting, but like for the Super high altitude stuff. I don't know if that's necessarily off the table here.
0: So do you think that that would be used in conjunction with this mini BFR, or is that something else that they would do?
1: I read it as separate. I I think you could argue either way, and I don't know which one seems more reasonable to me.
0: I guess one way or the other, they're going to be trying to bring back the second stage, or at least get it to a stage where you know that it could be reused, but they might have to just ditch it in the ocean since, uh, I mean, well, I don't know. Like, if they do a mini BFR type of a thing they i suppose might be landing it on some legs but not necessarily cuz it might just be to test you know the TPS or whatever
2: yeah evidently they are kind of decoupling testing the reentry and testing the landing
1: yeah yeah that that's a great way to put it um so what they're saying what elon said was ultralight heat shield and high mock control surfaces are what we can't test well without orbital reentry. um they're saying that the grasshopper the bfr dev is going to do supersonic down to landing so it's yeah like you said they're decoupling the two which is not a bad idea
0: yeah And of course, as always, there's a great video that you can watch from Scott Manley, who kind of, you know, shows exactly or gives an idea of what's likely to happen. So you can watch that as well. But yeah, I mean, it would be cool to see something. Well, I think the coolest thing would be to actually see payload doors, you know, or I guess just one door Mm -hmm. because that's how the BFR would work, right? You would just have Mm -hmm. one door that would hinge open from one side and then they release the payload. I think that that's how the design works, or at least that's like the last one that I saw. That would be cool, but that would mean more mass to orbit which, you know, you wouldn't have to have. So maybe for delivering smaller payloads where they could afford to do this, that is probably when they would do it. Or maybe to deliver their own satellite constellation into orbit, uh, since I don't know if a third-party customer would want to take the risk of putting their payload on this weird cobbled-together second stage.
1: (laughs) Or maybe he's just going to use it to get more cars into space right or maybe that
0: yeah yeah so first flight by june so that's well about what seven months away
1: yeah so elon time june 2020
0: <laughs> exactly right Yeah. i mean i i'd say they'd probably they'll probably do it by next year but late next year maybe who knows yeah
1: i mean it'll be really interesting to find out what design has to go into this because the aerodynamics are probably going to be pretty well worked out at this point but the rest of the design obviously it doesn't have to be you know crew certified so it's easier mm-hmm. but that and the fabrication but you know i don't know we'll see yeah <laughs> chris hoffman in the chat says uh the elon standard time multiplier is 1.6 so let's let's not get too crazy guys.
0: this week uh, for our fourth data relay segment i don't know if we should be counting them anymore but we have richard durden to give us some insight on insight uh, the Mars Insight mission. What? Well, that wasn't even a pun. Uh, so uh, so welcome, Richard. And thanks for having me on. So you've been, I guess, like a friend of the show for some time now. I don't know if we've never, we've never had you on, right? I
3: think I've been on once when we were teasing the, uh, f- the second iteration of the book club, the uh, Failure is Not an Option book club. That okay, was, that's right. That was yeah. quite some time ago.
0: Hard to keep track of people, but uh, <laughs> I guess just tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll go from there.
3: Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Richard Durden. I have a uh, bachelor's in mechanical engineering from the University of Florida. I'm a patent examiner at the Patent Trademark Office, uh, but I'm here, uh, obviously, on a personal, <laughs> um, not not any professional uh, capacity.
1: And uh, Richard and I work together a lot. I mean, like, he helps us with a lot of, like, community stuff. Um, and right now, he's, like, pretty much running Data Relay because <laughs> uh, there's
3: a lot of... You're just keeping everybody on the time. Yeah.
0: So I guess we'll just begin with you introducing Mars Insight. So I sure, we we'll go from there. Yeah,
3: so... Uh, Mars InSight is a NASA lander uh, scheduled to arrive on November 26, 2018. Depending on when that comes out, that should be relatively soon. InSight is one of those tortured acronyms that NASA loves so much Mm -hmm. uh, for interior exploration using seismic investigations, geodesy, and heat transport. So uh, that was uh, somebody sat there a long time trying to figure that one out. (laughs) So a couple first, firsts, uh, a mission first before we get started, uh, kind of diving into the details. It'll be the first mission dedicated to the deep interior of Mars. Uh, The first mission to place a seismometer directly on another planet to detect quakes, although Apollo did place some seismometers on the moon. Uh, The Viking landers had some deck-mounted seismometers, but they weren't on the surface, so this will be the first time it's based on the the surface. Uh, It'll also be the deepest probe on Mars, burrowing up to 5 meters with one of its tools, which we'll talk about later. Uh, The Phoenix lander, by comparison, can only go to about 18 centimeters, so it'll be much deeper. The first to use a magnetometer on the surface of Mars and the first interplanetary launch from the West Coast, which already took place. So those are kind of the firsts uh, for this mission here. As far as the history goes, it kind of starts all the way back in the 1970s. The National Research Council's Committee of Planetary and Lunar Exploration identified determination of internal structure of Mars as an objective of the highest importance. And that was a quote there. Although they didn't really do much about it since the 1970s. <laughs> the most recent decadal survey said from 2011 stated that insight into the composition, in structure. And history of Mars is fundamental to understanding the solar system as a whole, as well as providing context for history and processes of our own planet. Uh, And then they also kind of put some commentary of their own saying, unfortunately there has been little progress made towards a better understanding of the Martian interior. (laughs) So that kind of sets the background for it. It kind of comes off the latest decadal. Principal investigator Bruce Bannert of JPL submitted the original mission proposal under the moniker of Geophysical Monitoring Station, GEMS to NASA's Discovery Program in 2010 for the 2016 launch opportunity. InSight was ultimately selected in August 2012, beating up 27 other proposals. So that's kind of the background of how we got to uh, the mission being, you know, funded and, and selected, was through the Discovery Program uh, coming out of the decadal suggestions. Um, it's kind of hard to remember all the time that these hardware devices are really meant to achieve scientific objectives. Uh, you know, before you can start building the instruments, you have to know what science you want to go collect, and that's part of the whole process for the proposal so before we dive into the actual hardware i'd like to kind of highlight some of the science objectives that uh, insight's actually going to achieve how do we know if, if insight was a success and then why was it kind of funded to begin with so there's two official science goals for insight the first is understanding the formation and evolution of terrestrial planets through investigation of interior structure and processes of mars that's the, the fancy way of saying uh, we want to see what Mars is made out of. <laughs> and then the second one is present level of tectonic activity and meteorite impact activity on Mars. And that's kind of a, you know, we want to take the pulse of Mars, see if Mars is still alive. Right. And um, those are the two kind of overarching science goals. And then you kind of break it down. How do we measure those things? So the specific scientific objectives are determining the thickness and structure of the crust, determining the composition and structure of the mantle, determining the size, composition, and physical state of the core, determining the thermal state of the interior, measuring the rate and geographic distribution of seismic activity, and measuring the rate of meteorite impacts on the surface. So that's kind of taking those two overarching science goals and breaking them down into science objectives.
1: And and some of these objectives are are really tough, like determining the differences between the cross-mantle and core is mm-hmm. really easy on Earth because you know, you've know you got a chewy center. But on Mars, everything is cooled way, way down, and the mm. the only real difference is going to be density. So you're going to have to be really careful to actually tease out these, these distinctions.
3: Exactly. And this next one is one that we tend to miss, and this is the quantifiable success criteria. So this is kind of where the rubber meets the road a bit, where you have those objectives— And then we have the hardware, which we love so much. And how do we kind of mate those hardware to those objectives to know if, you know, what we need to measure and then how precise we need to measure it. So these are the actual quantifiable success criteria for InSight. Uh, And they, they correspond to each of those previous goals. So for the first goal of determining the thickness and structure of the crust, they want to determine the thickness to a precision of plus or minus 10 kilometers. By comparison, the current estimate is that the thick the, the crust thickness is 65 kilometers with a precision of about 35 kilometers. So trying to get that precision from 35 kilometers down to 10 kilometers is a, uh, you know, quite a significant reduction in uncertainty there. Mm-hmm. By comparison, Earth's continental crust is 30 to 50 kilometers and the oceanic crust is 5 to 15 kilometers. So the estimate is that Mars crust is thicker than, than Earth's crust uh, and we want to see know kind of how that compares they also want to determine the crustal layers with a thickness of five kilometers or greater so what that means is any layer of the crust that's thicker than five kilometers they want to be able to tease that out so uh, if they can resolve that overall crust into different layers that's that's what they want to do with this with this mission as well right now we have no current knowledge of any crustal layering on mars So this will be a new thing that InSight is determining. On to the next objective here, or criteria rather. Determining the composition and structure of the mantle. So they want to determine the velocity of seismic waves in the upper 600 kilometers of the mantle to a precision of plus or minus 0.25 kilometers per second. Mantle composition can be determined from velocity. So like you said, they kind of need to know what the mantle and crust are made out of, and the way they do that is by identifying the the waves that that go through it, which can give them density and composition and all that other fun stuff. By comparison, the current precision is plus or minus 1 kilometers per second is kind of the the current uncertainty, so kind of dropping that down to 0.25 kilometers will definitely help to kind of tighten that up. Uh, As far as determining the size, composition, and state of the core, uh, one of the first objectives here is positively distinguishing between a liquid and solid outer core. So, that's pretty straightforward. Does it have a liquid or solid outer core? Determining the core's radius to a precision of plus or minus 200 kilometers. Right now we have an estimate of about plus or minus 300 kilometers precision, so dropping that uh, slightly. Determining the core density to a precision of plus or minus 450 kilograms per meter cubed. Uh, core composition can be inferred from density, so we want to figure out you know what the density is made out of, and finding the density uh, kind of helps helps us do that. Currently, we have a precision of plus or minus 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed, so about halving the uncertainty for the core composition, uh, core density, rather. The next uh, objective here is determining the thermal state of the interior, uh, determining heat flux from the planet's interior at the landing site to a precision of plus or minus 5 milliwatts per meter squared. Uh, our current precision um, is about to so 2.5 watts per meter squared. Current estimates are a heat flux of 30 milliwatts per square meter by comparison heat flux on Earth is between 65 and 100 milliwatts per square meter. And that's going to help determine, you know, how much heat uh, Mars is losing uh, at any given time, you know, kind of over time. So mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and that that's also a powerful driver for life. Because, you know, here on Earth, we've got, you know, huge, like the 101 milliwatts per square meter is like less than what are they called the uh, like the vents that those uh, hydrothermal, yeah, vents. hydrothermal vents where like, life can literally live off the The temperature difference, and so like this is potentially like a way to power life instead of sure, you know, power from the sun or or chemical changes in the in the salty uh, brine just under the surface.
0: I wonder if this could be like data that could be used to determine if there is microbial life, because you know that has its own thermal properties, and bacteria do weird things, and so I mean, I oh, you mean
1: like comparing. What the ground is radiating versus, oh, hey, look, the overall planet's radiating a little more, which means that there's something else going on
0: here. Just trying to find some kind of discrepancy that couldn't be explained mm-hmm. otherwise.
3: Potentially, although, as we'll see later, the spot they're landing is not very likely to support life, you know, what their their plan is anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part by mission design and part by planetary protection protocol. So. Right. <laughs> we'll continue on, but it's a good it's a good question, of course, uh, measuring the rate and geographic distribution of seismic activity. So they kind of want to see what Marsquakes are going on or if there are Marsquakes uh, determining rate of seismic activity to within a factor of two. They want to determine the epicenter of a seismic event to within 25 percent. I'm not exactly sure what units that is, uh, but 25 uh, <laughs> uh, epic- percent epicenter uh, location. Determine the azimuth to the epicenter within 20 degrees. And uh, none of these have been previously measured. So these are all brand new measurements that uh, we haven't had a chance to measure before. So that'll be some of the most novel science coming off the mission. And then the last one is determining meteorite impact rate to within a factor of two. Current estimates are within a factor of about six. So kind of identifying more accurately how many meteorites attack, you know, uh, impact Mars. So Attack is probably
1: the correct word. <laughs> Attack. <laughs> Attack.
3: Uh so those are the quantifiable success criteria. So those are the those are the actual uh objectives that, you know, once the mission's all said and done, did we meet all these goals? Did we measure all these things to the required precision? That's how they'll determine, you know, if it was a successful mission.
1: And that's that's just in like the primary mission life, right? And so if they stay there longer, they may tack on some other things or increase those precision values does that sound reasonable
3: uh i mean yeah i guess it depends on the the instrument uh but also it depends on you know what other things they can tease out of this data like this is what the instruments were designed yeah. for mm-hmm. but i'm sure there's a lot of other things that can be inferred from from yeah, these things yeah, right so we're going to talk a little bit about the lander itself and then i'm going to start talking through the mission and then we'll kind of add more details as we're talking through the mission chronologically so just to give you the the, uh, the basic overview, the InSight lander is based heavily on the Phoenix lander. Uh, it's, it's pretty close to the Phoenix lander with some upgrades and some changes based on the mission profile. But it was built by Lockheed Martin Space, who also built Phoenix. So, uh, you know, very similar there. The avionics were derived from NASA's Maven and Grail missions. Uh, for those that are interested in kind of the flight computer stuff, it has redundant computers, one active and one backup. The CPU is a RAD 750, a radiation-hardened power PC 750, operating at 115.5 megahertz uh compared to the 20 megahertz of CPUs uh, uh, uh phoenix's CPU so much faster than phoenix's CPU uh, but much slower than the computers that we'd have yeah. you know probably sitting on our desktop <laughs> right sure. now or in our pockets so comp- and that's you know a lot of that's because the radiation hardening you have to be careful for you know flipped bits and all that right. other fun mm-hmm. stuff
1: yeah you physically have to build bigger processors <laughs> like
3: Everything has to be bigger, right? Yeah, that's probably whole data relay by itself is radiation oh, yeah. hardening. Sure. Uh, Ooh, good oh, idea. Of yeah. Computers. <laughs> so it uh, comprises a payload interface card with 64 gigabytes of flash memory to store the science data. The flight software is written in C and C within the VXWorks OS. And by the way, all this data comes from the fantastic press kit that uh, JPL NASA put out. Some of this stuff isn't, but for the most part, uh, this is all from their press kit, which is very long and very fantastic. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. Not every mission has that detailed press kit. So The propulsion of the InSight lander has 20 hydrazine thrusters, and they're in three varieties. They have four RCS thrusters, each providing 4.4 newtons of force, four trajectory correction maneuver TCM thrusters, each providing 22 newtons of force, and 12 descent engines, each providing 302 newtons of force. What's interesting is that each RCS thruster is paired with a TCM thruster, In four different rocket modules, and those rocket modules come from the lander, but they extend through cutouts in the back shell during the cruise phase. The dimensions of InSight uh, has a deck width of uh, 1.56 meters or about five feet. The span when the solar panels are deployed is about 19 and a half feet or six meters. So it's quite long, very odd shape. It's not, it's not uh, square shaped. It's kind of a long elongated. And then it has a robotic arm, which is about 1.8 meters or six feet. Uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. The lander mass is 358 kilograms by itself, or about 800 pounds. Uh, With the cruise stage, propellant, and aeroshell, you have a total mass of 1,530 pounds, or about 700 kilograms. Uh, The science payload makes up about 50 kilograms of that, so much less than the total lander, but, you know, that's always the case with these things. So, the part that we like the most. Three main science experiments. It has the seismic experiment for interior structures, SCIS. Uh, That is the main... Uh, instrument that's going to be detecting all the Mars quakes and the the all that other seismic activity. It was provided by a consortium led by France's CNES, uh, you know, the National Space Agency of France. But there's also components from Schwe- uh, French, Swiss, British, German, Canadian, and American organizations. Looking through the list, there's a lot of fun stuff in this device, including chainmail from uh, Canada. So <laughs> the device has some chainmail on it. I'm not exactly sure where that comes into play, but uh, chainmail on Mars. That's that's interesting. To me. Wow. <laughs> You also you also might remember that the failure of the vacuum vessel in, on this instrument was what delayed insight from its 2016 launch window. So it was originally supposed to launch two years ago, and then it got delayed uh, because of some incidents here. It looks like it was a welding flaw. So
1: SACE gets deployed onto the surface, and the entire thing is like inside a big vacuum. And so it turns out that they you know welded it up, pulled a vacuum, and it leaks. And so The issue wasn't, oh, let's re-weld it. It was like, how do we patch this weld and still be able to survive in the thermal extremes that it's going to experience both on the way to Mars and on Mars itself? But I I looked it up because I was really curious um, how big of a leak it is. If you had a typical car tire with the same leak rate, it would take about 50 years to drop by one pound per square inch.
0: Those are good tires.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Exactly. This is an amazing, amazing leak rate for a car tire, uh, but not quite good enough for science.
3: Right. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the the specific details of is is it pronounced Sace? Is that what we're? Oh, I that that was my
1: assumption. Although there aren't, you know, Spain didn't uh, collaborate on it, so. (laughs) Maybe not.
3: (laughs) I just tend to divert to uh, to calling the letters out: S C I S. But I'm not sure. I don't have a specific pronunciation guide one way or the other. So speaking of that, the next one is the Heat Flow and Physical Properties Probe, HP3, also pronounced HP cube, is the official pronunciation, HP cubed, and that is provided primarily by the German Aerospace Center, also known as DLR. And then the last instrument, which isn't really an instrument at all, is Rotation and Interior Structures Experiment which is RISE. And basically, this is an experiment that uses InSight's X-band antenna and the large antenna dish of the DSN to provide precise tracking of InSight's location and assess perturbations of Mars' rotation axis mm. through an entire Martian year, uh, which can provide information about the planet's core. So basically, they're going to be tracking InSight's particular location throughout the solar system for a Martian year, and that'll tell them if Mars is wobbling and, and all that other fun stuff. Not, not so much an instrument on the device as it is just the way they're using insight there are a few additional components to support the main instrument investigations the first one is a sensor package called the auxiliary payload sensor system sorry sensor subsystem APSS and important on there is a magnetometer wind direction and velocity sensors atmospheric temperature and pressure sensors uh, as we mentioned earlier magnetometer on the surface of Mars is the first time they've they've done that primarily used to help interpret data from the SEIS or SACE instrument and uh Components for that were provided by UCLA, JPL, Spain Center for Astrobiology. So Spain helped on the APSS. And uh, temperatures and the wind sensors are located on these kind of finger-sized booms, which were actually leftovers from Curiosity's rover environmental monitoring station. So as you'll notice, they reused Phoenix. They reused components from Curiosity. It was definitely a mission where they used a lot of previous resources to help develop it instead of inventing everything from whole cloth Mm -hmm. where they could. Also tacked on is a laser retroreflector for InSight called uh, Larry, I guess. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, that like that. That <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's provided by the Space Agency of Italy. That's basically a little half dome piece of material that's got a bunch of mirrors on it. And in the future, since they know its location so accurately, they can have different orbiters around Mars kind of ping it and, and know exactly where it's at to help either further refine the location of InSight or to help refine the, the orbiter or whatever they want to use it for. But mm-hmm. it's just a laser retroreflector like we have on some of the Apollo stuff and on other devices. So that's the main thing for that. So, also guys, an instrument deployment arm, an instrument deployment camera, which is a 1024 by 1024 pixel, about one megapixel camera, that is pointable and attached to the arm. That's kind of a narrow focus camera. And then fixed to the deck, they have an instrument context camera, which has the same resolution. And that's more of a wide angle camera, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And then finally, uh, it's got solar panels, which can provide six to 700 watts in clear weather, two to 300 watts on a dusty day, and lithium-ion batteries. They're slightly larger than Phoenix's panels to support the longer Prime mission, which is supposed to be about one Martian year, I believe, mm. is the, the Prime mission. So before we dig, dive into the uh, full mission of Mars Insight, we're going to talk about uh, kind of a assistive uh, payload here, uh, Mars Cube 1. Uh, you may have heard a little bit about these. These are two cubesats that were launched along with Mars Insight, uh, which consist of uh, Marco A and Marco B, nicknamed Wally and Eva by JPL engineers. Oh. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're basically cubesats, and um, they just just like Wally in that scene where uh, Wally gets knocked out of the space station. They they maneuver using compressed gas. You know they have a full <laughs> maneuvering system on them. Primarily they're solar powered, and they're essentially a tech demo to design. Uh, Perform a series of communication navigation experiments, including a possible experimental relay of InSight landing data, which I'll talk a little bit more about later, but it could be really interesting for future missions if this type of technology uh, works out. Basically, instead of having to have orbiters in place at wherever you want to land to to relay the mission data, you could bring along your own uh, relay station. Each of these Marco A and B, or Wally and Eva, depending on how we want to call them, <laughs> uh, carries uh, two color cameras. Although I think Marco A, one of the color cameras, was noticed before launch that it was not operable. Oh. But it's, it's not critical to the mission, but it's unfortunate. It has a deployable high-gain flat-panel X-band antenna designed to transmit data to Earth. A non-deployable low- and medium-gain antenna, or antennas, for near-Earth communications, for uh, receiving commands from Earth. It's got a UHF receiver to listen to insights comms, which is important, which may be used during EDL. And like I mentioned earlier, each has an attitude control system, including a star tracker, sun sensors, gyroscopes, and a three-axis reaction wheel. Again, this is a CubeSat, guys. This is a full yes. spacecraft system in the CubeSat. <laughs> uh, it's propelled by compressed gas, R-236FA gas, commonly used in fire extinguishers. So again, like Wally, it's basically yep. just ring <laughs> with fire extinguishers. Uh, and then finally, it has a full thermal control system, including heaters, temperature sensors, thermal blankets, and radiators. So again, they're kind of full up communications sat uh, you know probes but they're the size of a cubesat which is you know absolutely ridiculous in my mind they've already successfully demonstrated the communication and propulsion systems are functional and even took some images of the earth and moon they kind of have their own you know blue marble pictures that you can kind of find online which is interesting but their real effect comes in later during EDL which we'll talk about in just a minute so starting at the beginning here Uh, of the kind of chronological mission profile we have the launch and the cruise phase some of which most of which already happened so Mars Insight launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base on May 5th 2018 at 4.05 a.m pacific time 7.05 eastern time aboard an Atlas V in the 401 configuration there's a whole press kit about the launch for all the data for that Insight released from the Centaur upper stage separately from Marco satellites so these weren't attached to Insight they just happened to be kind of secondary payloads Centaur released Insight performed a short roll, and then released Marco A, rolled 180 degrees further, and then released Marco B. So they're kind of all traveling to Mars together, but they're not attached. They're all... Kind of like a formation of of (laughs) spacecraft going all together. I'm not sure if this is the first time we've sent three spacecraft in a formation to another planet at the same time. Mm -hmm. So InSight began a 205-day cruise phase, including six scheduled trajectory correction maneuvers and two opportunities for backup contingencies. As with other uh, spacecraft destined for other planets, they don't aim it directly at the planet. They they aim it near it. So in case something fails, it doesn't crash into it and contaminate uh, the planet for planetary protection. Inside is stowed inside an aeroshell consisting of a heat shield and a back shell, much like many of the other Mars landers and uh, rovers, of course. Uh, The cruise stage provides the antennas and solar panels for the cruise phase, along with two sun sensors and two star trackers. Uh, The heat shield is made of Lockheed Martin's super lightweight ablator 561V, which is essentially crushed Cork and some other fancy Mm -hmm. stuff. (laughs) They like to give it fancy names, but I'm not Sure. sure what else is in there. It was originally developed for the Viking missions and has been used for all of the other Mars missions except for Curiosity, and it won't be used for 2020. You know, they have the whole uh, rocket uh, <laughs> sky crane yeah, thing. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think they need the, uh, the blader, or they need a different ablator material. InSight's heat shield is slightly thicker than the Phoenix's. Uh, I believe it's because InSight is landing at a higher elevation, so it mm. needs to be, or it's coming in slightly faster. There's some reason why it's thicker than Phoenix's. I'm not exactly sure.
1: I, w- I, wonder, I wonder if it's mass. That, that's kind of my first thought.
3: Uh, it, it might be. The aeroshell diameter is 2.64 meters, or about uh, nine feet diameter so now the fun part edl this is kind of the scariest part of any part of the mars is you know landing there getting there kind of a handle on and then landing so here we go the landing process is automated but the exact parameters are not finalized until about three hours before entry Uh, weather conditions as observed by mro can be taken into account Um, so as we're walking through this this is the time that was provided in the nasa jpl press kit Uh, their estimates um, and they account for the 8.1-minute signal delay. So when it says something happens at 11, it means we receive information about it at 11, as far as my understanding goes. Nice. So this is eight minutes before this happens. So uh, as they're starting to approach Mars for EDL, uh, Entry Descent Landing, at about 11 a.m. Pacific time uh, on November 26, the Catalyst bed heaters will be turned on for InSight's thrusters. And uh, away we go. Seven minutes before entry, uh, InSight will jettison its cruise stage, and leaving only the entry vehicle which is the aeroshell plus the lander. Uh, InSight will begin transmitting a carrier-only signal from an omnidirectional antenna on the back shell called the wraparound antenna patch. 30 seconds after it drops the cruise stage, the entry vehicle will begin orienting for atmospheric entry, and that'll take about 70 seconds. So it kind of sets itself up to meet the atmosphere for the first time. Two minutes before entry, InSight will start transmitting data at 8 kilobytes per second in UHF. Uh, And this is where things get interesting. So Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is scheduled to be in position for receiving the data from InSight during the EDL, but it will not be able to transmit the data until a later orbit. So it's going to pass over InSight, collect the data, but then it's going to go behind Mars. It won't be able to communicate back. That's where Marco comes in. If all goes well, the Mars Cube satellites, they should be in position to receive the InSight EDL transmissions almost immediately. So cool. They format the data and add a small amount of other data to the signal. So there might be a slight delay. But they should be able to transmit it back almost immediately if they're functional and if everything goes according to plan. The DSN station in Madrid will be in position to receive the data from Marco. So this is kind of where they're testing it out. If if Marco A and B work, we'll be able to find out almost immediately how everything went. Otherwise, we have to wait for uh, MRO to come around. Insight in the aeroshell will enter the Martian orbit. Sorry, enter enter the Martian atmosphere at 5.5 kilometers per second at around 1147 Pacific time. The atmospheric entry point is a target which is 3,500 kilometers from the center of Mars or 128 kilometers above ground level. The NAV target, which is kind of their entry window, is a 10 by 24 kilometer rectangle. By comparison, the JPL press kit states that it's like hitting the size of a soccer goal from about 80,000 miles or hitting a fast-moving target the size of a smartphone from New York to Denver. Mm. You know, I think it's a little bit misleading because, you know, if you can correct the trajectory while you're flying there, <laughs> it's a little bit different. But uh, it's still interesting to point out that way nonetheless. Sure. By comparison, the landing zone is quite large. The landing zone's 130 kilometers by 27 kilometers uh, ellipse, about 700 kilometers west of the entry target, in Elysium Planitia. It's considered by the team to be the biggest parking lot on Mars. So since it's studying the planet itself and not the landing site, which is different than most of the Mars rovers and other landers, mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter where it lands on the planet it just has to get there so they're, they're picking the flattest spot they could find and the largest spot they could find and just saying land there safely so a big flat stable surface is all they needed and elysium planatia provided the biggest
1: and tartan like tartan. you're you're not kidding about big and flat like if you look at the landing zone like i think there's one visible large boulder and it's like at the edge of the landing ellipse like yeah, parking lot is a good description. It's super, super flat. <laughs>
3: Peak heating occurs about 1.5 minutes after entry, with the heat shield reaching about 1,500 degrees C. Deceleration is about 15 seconds after that, which I guess is like a, rem- a reverse max Q. Oh yeah. At <laughs> um, <laughs> up to a, a 7.5 g, ionization of gas may cause a gap in radio transmission, much like when you're, you know, entering Earth, you have that kind of blackout period. During the aerobraking phase, Insight will shed 99.5 percent of its kinetic energy, so it's relying a lot on the aerobraking to slow. Down, which much like any Earth re entry, I think is very similar. Once proper velocity and deceleration conditions are met, the parachute will deploy from its back shell about 11 kilometers above ground level. The spacecraft will still be traveling about 385 meters per second and putting about 55.6 kilonewtons of force on the parachute. So it's about 12,000 pounds of force on that parachute when it deploys. 10 seconds after chute deployment, the landing radar electronics will begin to warm up and the auxiliary battery will be activated. About 25 seconds after shoot deployment, the heat shield will be jettisoned and three legs will extend. Two minutes after parachute deployment, InSight will start using radar to sense velocity and distance to the ground. When the radar senses an altitude of one kilometer and a velocity of 60 meters per second, about 45 seconds before landing, InSight will separate from the back shell and parachute. The data stream will have a brief interruption while the comm system switches to the lander's transmitter. As I said, you know, it's going to get rid of that, that back shell, and that's where the original, you know, antenna was, so it has to switch to the Right, because you can't, you can't be using the lander's
1: antenna when you're inside the back shell right
3: so once it separates the 12 descent engines will start firing and they're going to try to nullify horizontal velocity as much as possible and regulate the descent speed here's a cool little thing that i'm sure some engineer decided Mm -hmm. was important if the computer senses that the horizontal speed is below a certain threshold it'll perform an additional maneuver to avoid the back shell parachute assembly hitting it Hmm. so you can kind of imagine if it uh, hits you know if it ejects the uh, back shell and then stops the backshell is kind of on the same trajectory, so it could hit the lander. So it's going to move out of the way if it senses that it's slowed down enough. So it doesn't get hit by the, the backshell and uh, parachute assembly. And then it's also going to rotate itself. So the solar arrays are oriented east-west. Remember I said one dimension is about 5 feet, one dimension is about 19 feet. It wants that 19 feet dimension once it's deployed to be east-west, so that the robotic arm is facing the south side. I guess that's just the preferred orientation that they'd like. So that's what it's going to do at this point, actually. About 50 meters above the ground... Moving at 7.7 meters per second, it's going to transition into a constant velocity mode, and it lands 15 seconds later at 2.24 meters per second, about 5 miles per hour when it touches down. And uh, that's the uh, scary part the EDL. (laughs) So once it's on the ground, now the fun stuff can begin, the surface operations. Now, as you know, there's a delay between the communications. So uh, the surface operations, uh, all the landing activities are pre-programmed to occur autonomously, beginning one minute after landing. So once it hits down, it's going to go into a pre-programmed mission state, and just start doing its first day activities. Uh, It will take some images a few minutes after landing, but they're going to be obscured because there might still be the dust covers on, which was also the case with Curiosity. And engineering data is prioritized, so the images um, are really based on the satellite um, Marco, MRO, and Odyssey availability. If Marco is available, like we said, the first images could be uh, ready almost right away, 10 to 20 minutes after landing. Marco could upload those images, because I don't think they're relying on Marco for critical engineering data. They might send that engineering data through it, but that's not critical. So they could send some, some uh, images through, through Marco if that's available. Otherwise, MRO is the prime data relay. And of course, prioritizing engineering data is their, their main mission there. So if it does send any images, it probably wouldn't be available till later in the day. Anyway, as I said, MRO has some time before it can transmit back. Fortunately, Odyssey is scheduled to pass over a few hours later, but it will be receiving a recording of the EDL data from InSight as well. So first images probably would be later as well. Odyssey passes over the next morning, and then they can send images. So it might be till the next day that we can receive any images from it, unless Marco is available, in which case we can get them right away. I feel like this is why they were trying to take some of the um, recovery operations off of Opportunity because I think you can see here that it's, it's kind of really intensive and you'll see over the first 17 weeks or so, it's pretty intensive for, uh, Mars data. So I don't think they wanted to be using DSN so much to keep contacting opportunity. If they have so much to going on with, uh, with Insight. But again, that's just my speculation. Mm-hmm. I don't have any specific uh, insight oh, <laughs> into that well, into that yeah. decision making. But uh, <laughs> he did it too. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what I've heard anyway.
1: It, it certainly seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's right. not an out there kind of guess.
3: So once Insight's on the ground, uh, it'll rely on battery power for the first 16 minutes to let dust settle before deploying the solar panels. It would really suck if you get there, kick up a bunch of dust, open your solar panels, right. and then let all this <laughs> dust that you just kicked up land on your own solar panels. So... Uh, it's going to wait for some dust to settle. Uh, while it's settling, the motors for deploying the panels are going to warm up. You know, you have to warm up everything on Mars um, before you can move it. So mm. they can let that warm up. And then it's going to deploy the solar array. Uh, but of course, the solar array deployment information won't be available until the Odyssey pass a few hours later because it has to wait to warm up. So MRO is going to pass over during landing. we will have to wait for Odyssey to come back around uh, a few hours later. So we won't know if the solar panels deployed until later, mm. uh, which is... Maybe a bit uh, uh, nail biting, I guess. But uh, anyway, (laughs) we'll see how it goes. The rest of Soul Zero will be basically checking out all the mechanics and all that other fun stuff, checking out all the systems, and then it's gonna power down for sleep mode. It's like I just got here, now I gotta go back to sleep. (laughs) It's gotta go to sleep during the first night, you know, to preserve all the electronics, and there's no solar power, so all those reasons. So during the first week, Insight's main mission is going to be imaging the area around it in stereo. Now, my understanding is it's only got the two cameras, so. I assume it's gonna kinda do what Curiosity does and or kind of take take two pictures with the same arm and kind of false stereo, I guess. Um I don't think it's gonna be true. Well, Curiosity does have two cameras, but um I think this is gonna be kind of a, a false stereo thing, so they can get the three D images of the area around it. Yeah,
1: it's it's true stereo just like misaligned in time.
3: Yes. <laughs> you are gonna be uh true three D stereo, not true 4 D stereo, <laughs> I guess. I that <laughs> <matters>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then for the next two weeks, the team's going to focus on detailed analysis of the ground area. So they're going to be spending about three weeks just looking at the ground. Where do we land? Where's the rocks at? Where's the best spots to put down our instruments? So a lot of nothing exciting going on the first three weeks for for most of us that are just outside the team. Um, So then once they kind of characterize the area around it, probably more than any patch of dirt's been characterized in a long time, uh-huh.
0: they will start to deploy the instruments. But how much choice do they have in that? Because this thing cannot move, None. right? So they have to get it right the first time. <laughs> right. So right. how do they pick like exactly where they're going to deploy instruments? I mean, they so, I, I guess they have some range of motion.
3: Right. The robotic arm's about six foot length, and I think they have a choice on the south. Remember, they, they can only really deploy things on the south side anyway, right? So they have a choice of anywhere their arm can reach on the south side to pick to deploy two instruments. They have the seismic experiment, and they have the uh, thermal experiment. And they got to find a spot to put them both. Ideally, you know where they can reach it. So mm-hmm. I think it's just a matter of with their limited choices, where can we put this stuff that will best serve it? We don't want to place it on top of a rock. So pretty much, that's that's kind of uh, what they're trying to do is figure out where best we can we can put it. I don't know if they have any capacity to move things out of the way. I, I, mm. I don't think that's a thing that. I don't have any insight on that. I don't have any. Yeah. I don't have any knowledge on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I
1: mean, they they don't have a a grabber, but I guess you could shove a rock possibly. But I think they'd probably. They do
3: have a grappling fixture on the end of the arm to grab the instruments, right. but I don't think it grabs rocks. Right.
1: It's yeah. The rocks on Mars, unfortunately, don't come with grapple fixtures.
3: I wouldn't want to be the JPL engineer that's like, "Hey, can we just like knock that rock yeah. out of the way a little bit?" <laughs> like, I don't know if that would fly, uh, especially
1: before you've picked up your payload maybe maybe after the payloads are deployed they'll you know go oh well you know what actually we can dig around in the in the dirt
3: here once the payloads deployed i don't think the arm has much to do other than take pictures so they could probably do whatever they want with the arm after that (laughs) so uh short of i think they might want to be careful not to knock the thing over but i don't know how much that would take i don't know how that works but and i think that's where the kind of the extended mission comes into play what can we do with these other instruments we already have access to so of course before that gets anywhere, they have to set down the, the main instrument. So the seismic experiment is going to be set down first. Uh, and the seismic instrument is uh, comprised of two different kind of assemblies. Uh, there's six sensor, It's a six-sensor seismometer and has two sets of three sensors. And this is where we have the whole vacuum vessel that we talked about earlier. So the first set are ultra-sensitive, quote, very broadband sensors, and they're in the vacuum vessel. These sensors measure in the medium to low frequency range from a few hertz to less than one ten thousandth of a hertz. Hertz, So like one, uh, you know, oscillation every 10 minutes or more. So very, very low frequencies uh, here up to a few hertz, you know, there. Then they have some other short period sensors, which measure up to about 50 hertz. Those aren't in the vacuum vessel, but they're also in the same assembly. And then they're housed together in a remote warm enclosure box, which rests on three legs to help level it out, forming a precision leveling structure connected to the lander by a tether containing power and data lines. So when they set it down, they're going to set down the sensors and the the, the vacuum vessel on the ground. Tether is going to run back to the device, but the electronics box stays on the lander. So the electronics box isn't being set down. That's going to stay on the lander. When a suitable location is found, the robotic arm will grasp a grapple point located at the top of the remote warm box enclosure. So, like we said earlier, there is a grapple device, but I think it's meant just pretty much to grab these grapple points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have specific details on that, but I'm not sure if they can grab rocks and other stuff like that. I think it's just to grab, to grab this. Uh, this will be the first time a robotic arm has ever grasped an object on another planet, which mm. is an interesting little first. Mm. So
0: that just kind of surprises me. I, I thought that some like rover would have had that ability, but I mean, they probably grabbed like. Dirt, but yeah, I don't think we've ever grabbed another instrument yeah. to like move no, it. No, yeah, sc- yeah. Sco-
1: we've scooped dirt, but grabbing is a different thing.
3: And I, I don't think that like on curiosity, I don't think the drills like switch out the same way. Maybe they're just like a, this. I don't, I don't think it works the same way as this anyway. But in any case, once the seismometer is placed, the arm will grab another component, the wind and thermal shield, which we placed over the seismometer. So they sent out They, they set down the seismometer assembly, and then they put a kind of a, a shield, like a, a shield over it to protect it from wind and temperature changes and all sorts of things like that to make sure that it's, they minimize as many outside influences as possible. Uh, and the reason is uh, the following. So the sensors can detect ground motion smaller than the diameter of a hydrogen atom. So they're very, very sensitive instruments. And this is why they need the, the vacuum vessel, the thermal shield, all the other fun stuff to minimize as much as possible those outside influences. Uh, the auxiliary payload sensor subsystem, the APSS data is also primarily used to help interpret this data. So if the wind comes by and shakes the whole thing, and then you see a big, you know, size activity, it's probably just the wind moving you around. It's not going to be that, uh, that giant earthquake or something like that. So that's the main reason for all those sensors. Um, so,
1: so can I back up a little bit to this, uh, this end effector? Yeah. So it's a, it's actually a five fingered end effector. Um, so it's it's not like the latching end effector on Kanda Arm 2. Um, it does actually have fingers that grab. The grapple fixture on both of the instruments is basically a knob. So they'll position it over the knob and close uh, these five fingers. Um, so potentially, it, it might actually be able to grab a rock. But here's the really cool thing. The mechanism that they use... Uh, to actually power the claw is a paraffin uh, cylinder. So they heat the paraffin up and it expands. They let it cool off and it contracts. That, that's how it uh, actuates those fingers. Um, so the nice thing about that is, A, there's no real moving parts. It's just you know melting wax. And B, uh, you get incredible, incredible strength uh, out of paraffin actuators like this. And we use them on Earth uh, all, all the time. So it's, you know, a familiar technology.
3: If I had to guess, does the heating expand or contract the claw? Uh, it will open the claw, right? Because the wax melts and That it makes takes sense because if it's cold, you want it to fail closed. Right. Ah, Do you want it to fail yeah. closed? You don't want it to drop the instrument you're holding, right?
0: Yeah, but then to not have the ability to pick it up in the first place if you're at that you, stage. I don't know. Yeah,
1: you'd but, rather yeah. not be able to pick it up than to than to drop it i can confirm that that is the the way that it that it operates yes
3: end effectors and robotic arms is another opportunity for a whole other data relays. <laughs> like five so, or six uh, yeah like a series of data relays holding other podcast maybe i don't know um so moving on to the next thing so it should be able to sense mars quakes meteorite impacts faint gravitational effects from phobos that last one is interesting to me it can sense phobos that's how accurate this wow. thing is or precise, I suppose. The initial sources of ground vibration trigger seismic waves, which can be used to determine ground composition density layers, like we said before. So they want to sense what Mars is made out of, and the way to do that is through seismic waves. So without getting too much into detail, that's that's the point of the SEIS instrument is uh, to sense those those things there. So once it's placed the seismic instrument on the ground, it's going to place the HP3, or hp cubed instrument, rather, comprising the heat flow and physical properties probe on the ground. Yeah, this is the one that uh, I think most people are are interested in i guess most people interested in all this stuff but this is the one that i found quite interesting so this has a uh, self-hammering mole it's basically a it's not quite a drill it doesn't rotate but it does hammer itself into the ground uh, potentially up to five meters so uh, essentially it's going to place this thing on the ground and what it is is it's a an assembly that's got the the self-hammering mole and an electronic support box and the hammering mole is a hollow aluminum cylinder one inch in diameter by 16 inches long, or 2.7 centimeters by 40 centimeters, and tapers to a point. So it's a long cylinder with a point on the end, and a DC motor on the inside compresses a spring, which lifts a tungsten block. When the tungsten block reaches the top of its stroke, it's released, and it falls down, and there's a spring that accelerates it down towards the tip, which then hits the, the tip, which helps drill it in a little bit. But as it's falling, there's a second suppressor assembly that goes back up. And then once the first part hits, this suppressor falls back down and gives it a second (laughs) stroke. So for every stroke, it gets two hits on the anvil. And it takes about four seconds, and then it kind of constantly repeats itself for uh, 5,000 to 20,000 strokes over the course of 30 days. Every 50 centimeters it digs, it's going to pause to cool for about four days before resuming. So then the next question is, what is this whole drilling for? It's not really taking core samples. It's not doing anything that that the other stuff, you know, the other Curiosity missions I've done before. This is specifically looking at heat. So it has sensors and heaters to determine the thermal conductivity of the surrounding ground. So we talked earlier about heat flux and, and how you know, how much heat uh, Mars is losing. This is the instrument for that. So while it's digging, it's going to measure how long it takes for the ground to cool down after drilling. It's going to um, measure how deep it's it's uh, gone down. And it can potentially go down, like I said, up to up to five meters. They want to go at least three meters up to five meters. And there's a long tether that follows it. And the tether also has temperature sensors along the tether at different Mm -hmm. points. So once it's installed, you're going to essentially have a temperature sensing assembly that's three to five meters deep with temperature sensors every nine to 18 inches apart, which will help you really establish that temperature gradient uh, from the surface of, of, uh, of Mars here. And uh, once it's in place, it just kind of continues to measure. Once it's fully du- once it fully digs itself down, it just kind of sits there to collect the data. So the HP Cube sensors are precise to one one hundredth of a degree C. Uh, a couple other interesting parts about the HP Cubed is that the electronics box has half a gigabyte of non-volatile memory to hold all the mission data. It's got all the storage it'll need for the for the primary mission. Uh, it also has a radiometer, which is on the lander to measure the surface temperature, so it can kind of account for the surface temperature changes during its measurements. Yeah, that's pretty much it for the HP Cube. It took about seven weeks to install that, to dig all the way down. And that's kind of it for the main the main surface missions for InSight. Uh, it's supposed to take about uh, 40 souls until November 24, 2020, uh, to, to finish the main mission. And uh, the other interesting thing about it is it'll upload data to Earth via MRO in, in Odyssey about twice a day. It has an opportunity to do that. But it can receive commands from the DSN directly. It doesn't need to have the... Uh, satellites to relay data back down so they get the data they can plan the next day's mission and then upload it directly for the next day and that's kind of what i have for insight
1: yeah and so yeah 40 days is is not a lot of time so this is probably going to be another one of those missions where you know we complete the primary mission and then go and do extra data collection
3: right again what's interesting to me is the first 17 weeks is all the main activity it's deploying the instruments It's drilling, and then it kind of just sits there after that. So like I said with the opportunity thing, there's a lot of activity early on, which I think that they need almost daily access to MRO and Odyssey and DSN. So I feel like it's a lot of flurry up front, and then it just kind of sits there and collects data for <laughs> as long as it can,
0: right? Is there a finality to this mission, or do they just keep on taking the data? Because it just has to sit there, so I don't know how big of a team you would need here in order yeah. to take care of that. You could just basically put the antenna towards it, something in Mars orbit, to collect the data, transmit it, and that's all you need to do, really.
3: Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't say anything in particular about that, but I think you're right. I think it, it wouldn't take a whole lot it's not like a rover where you have to plan the next day's path yeah. or or anything but i don't i also don't want to minimize how much work it might take to keep this thing going you know if they are doing something with the camera and the you know the arm i remember you guys a while back had a talk about uh how much effort goes into moving around Canada arm. Uh, you know, this isn't quite Canada arm, yeah. but I'm sure there's a lot of calculations and effort going into every movement they make on this rover's arm as well. So even something as far as, you know, I want to take a picture of that. They probably have to make sure it's not going to hit something on the rover, you know, or cause some other issue as well. But um but I think you're right. I think once, once the prime mission is over, they'll probably have some opportunity to do some other things with it as well. And collecting meteorite impact data would be pretty cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. That only gets more valuable as you continue. So, how much is this thing going to cost?
3: So, the uh, cost of the mission is $813 million for the U.S. investment, and that's $163 million for launch services and two years of the prime mission and the spacecraft. France and Germany have also contributed $180 million for SEIS and HP Cubed. And the Mars Cube One mission cost $18.5 million for Mars Cube One. Now, my understanding was it was originally supposed to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $600 million dollars or so but the delay from 2016 to 2018 meant they had to make repairs and then store it for 2 years yeah, that'll do it. to launch it. Yeah. So there's also some planetary protection things which I mentioned earlier and these are kind of interesting. You know, of course you don't want to contaminate Mars when we're looking for potential signs of life. We don't want to bring our own along with us. Uh, either contaminate our own studies or it could cause adverse impacts to anything that was already living there. So, you know, planetary protection is the big thing that everyone you know talks about these days especially to potentially habitable planets. So the uh, criteria here are uh the lander parachute and backshell must not carry a total number of bacterial spores greater than 300,000. Now I don't want to be the intern that has to count all 300,000 <laughs> spores on this thing. <laughs> uh so I'm sure they don't do it like that but I'm sure it's based on the techniques they estimate and all that kind of fun stuff. So the average spore density must not exceed 300 spores per square meter. Of external surfaces, nor a thousand per square meter of enclosed interior surfaces, which makes sense. The external stuff's more likely to come in contact with Mars than the internal surfaces. So the biological load is not concentrated in one place. Uh, During construction of this device, they routinely wiped the surfaces with alcohol or other solvents. You know, try to keep everything clean as possible. I'm sure it was built in a clean room. Uh, and then components tolerant of high temperature were treated to reduce spore burden according to NASA specification. This dry heat treatment held components at a temperatures of 230 to 311 degrees Fahrenheit. 110 to 155 Celsius for durations of 14 to 258 hours for external surfaces and 97 to 1290 hours for enclosed surfaces. Can you imagine putting something in an oven for 1290 hours? Like I'm sure that cake is well done by then.
2: Now, was that the same type of basically heat treatment that Phoenix got? For going to a biologically sensitive area, potentially, or was this is this the more standard
3: one? And if you want to really bake your spacecraft, you got to go even higher and longer. I'm not sure offhand about the other one, but I will say that um, they were concerned a lot about the HP cubed instrument because it's digging so deep. So they had to select the location Elysian Planitia as one of the driest places on Mars, so it's least likely to have water. Mm-hmm. And you know the current NASA theory is water equals life, or you know it's usually. Correlated with life, anyway, and they also had to make sure that at that landing site, it couldn't get deep enough to reach any potential places that had water. So, depending on where they landed, they had to make sure that there wouldn't be anything that would get deep enough to contaminate the environment when they were digging. So, um, I'm not sure. I, I think it's just the standard one, but I don't. I'm not an expert in planetary protection, so I don't have any information on the other missions.
2: No, it's very interesting.
3: And then again, to prevent the possibility of Centaur hitting Mars, they they aim away from Mars and then correct back to the trajectory. Centaur was never aimed at Mars, you know, the the upper stage of the Atlas launch vehicle. And then for the other stuff, such as the cruise stage, which wasn't meant to hit Mars, uh, to land on Mars, they had to make sure that when it burned up in the atmosphere, it would be hot enough that none of the spores would survive. So they have to make sure they eject that early enough so it gets hot enough to decontaminate that before it hits the ground. And that's uh, that's my data relay on Mars Insight. Thank you very much. I learned a lot. I'm now extra excited for this mission. <laughs>
0: yeah, and we only have just a couple just a couple of weeks, really, right?
3: November twenty sixth wow Sweet.
0: that's on a monday for whatever that's worth <laughs>
3: for us and i think it's 11 p.m pacific time so it should be
0: 11 a.m rather
1: well thank you so much for taking the time to to build this i know that you you, you kind of came up with this idea um not terribly long ago and we all realized hey it'd be good to get this out before the landing right. so thank you so much for putting in a, a decent amount of time crunch
3: thanks for having me on and uh you know this is uh you know we're still kind of in the early phase of our uh, data relay segment and this one was a little bit more dense than maybe some of the other ones or maybe a little less dense than some of the other ones so uh, we certainly appreciate your feedback to see how much of a kind of high level narrative information people want and how much detailed nuts and bolts people want I try to throw in a little bit of both mm-hmm. to see what people like more but uh, yeah you know, we'll continue to refine the process going forward
0: So no questions comments or corrections so we're just gonna move right on to upcoming launches we got four of them this week so what's our first one ben
1: all right first up is gslv mark 3 flying gsat 29 this is delayed right we said this last week um so just another uh, geostationary communication satellite um, that's flying on November the 14th at 1138 UTC.
0: On the 15th, we have uh, uh, Antares 230, and that's flying uh, the Cygnus spacecraft, uh, and that's for CRS NG-10, and that Cygnus is named the SS John Young. So,
1: wait, NG is Northrop Grumman, so it's no longer Orbital ATK. Or, right, yeah. Uh, what was it, uh, o- OG-10 or whatever? I forget what the. I think it
0: was O a wasn't it
1: oh a yeah probably
0: oh a oh a yeah so now it's called the ng yeah so that's what that stands for that's kind of cool that is on november 15th at 0949 utc and that's launching from wallops in virginia and that's an instantaneous launch window unsurprisingly so check that one out
1: and continuing on we have a soyuz fg flying progress ms-10 also known as 71p depending on who you are Uh, And this is uh, a progress resupply vehicle. So this is um, sort of our confidence-developing flight before we fly people on Soyuz again. Uh, So this is flying on November 16th at 1814 UTC, of course, out of Baikonur.
0: And then lastly, uh, we have on November 19th at Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is flying SSO-A. So this is launching a whole bunch of satellites into sun-secretous orbit. Uh, I don't know how many, but a lot. Yeah, and that's launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base on the 19th at 1832 UTC, and that is also an instantaneous launch window. So yeah, a bunch of satellites.
1: So yeah, th- this is a controversial launch because um, pretty much none of these have their own propulsion. Um, so this is potentially just putting a bunch of bookshot up into orbit. Um, But the the total count, there are 64 spacecraft, 34 different providers, uh, 15 of them are microsats, 49 of them are cubesats. Um, And this will be the single largest rideshare mission from a U.S.-based company. So this, yeah, this is is a big one. Um, And then we had a couple of things on NASA TV, uh, primarily the uh, Cygnus uh, CR-10 mission, uh, will be deploying its solar arrays, and that'll be covered on NASA TV. That's November 15th at 5.45 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, then they're going to do a post-launch news coverage or uh, a news conference at 7 a.m. Then uh, Rendezvous and Capture will happen on November 18th, that's uh, Sunday, at 3 a.m. Eastern Time is when the coverage will begin. Uh, capture is scheduled at 4.35 a.m. Eastern Time. Installation will happen at 6.15 a.m. Uh, A.M. Eastern time, and then shortly thereafter, Progress will arrive. That'll be at 1:45 P.M. Uh, Eastern time. Docking is scheduled uh, for 2:30 P.M. Eastern time.
0: That's a lot of stuff happening on yeah, station. It's a busy week.
1: All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: And that brings us to the end, so let's deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitomechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, Visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit.
2: We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. And we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See
2: ya. (laughs)